Um, Acts chapter 28, though, uh, this morning, we're going to get to this in just a minute, but uh, I thought about this this week. In fact, I posted this statement on Facebook. There are none so deaf as those who will not hear, and none so blind as those who will not see. There are none so deaf as those who will not hear, and none so blind as those who will not see. And as we come near the end of the book of Acts, sadly, we find that many of the Jews who were in Rome, to whom Paul spoke, were hard of hearing and dim of sight. But the most troubling truth is that many people today who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ are no less hardened to it. In fact, I would venture to say that there are some here this morning within the sound of my voice. Some of you who have heard the wonderful message of peace and hope by the blood of our Savior and still sit in place doing nothing to respond to the offer of God's grace. Maybe you're here today and you've been here before. You've heard the Word of God. That Jesus died for your sins on the cross of Calvary. That He was buried in a stranger's tomb. That He rose again on the third day. And that He's ascended to sit at the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven. And yet you still have not repented of your sin and trusted in Him. To you, I say that this message is a warning. A warning that there have been many who came before you and did the same, refusing to turn to Christ, refusing to live. And they have died. And they've entered into eternal torment and damnation because they refuse to believe the truth. And you are no better than they. But they have lost their window of opportunity. And you have not. And so do, I I, I urge you this morning to not let this day go by without once again considering the good news of salvation. That you may finally humble yourself before the Lord and become a child of God. Read with me in Acts chapter 28 as we look at the situation here and what takes place I think I can paint a picture for you of what's going on, and I think there's a very powerful message for us. Look at verse 23, Acts 28, verse 23. Luke writes this, So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging. That's the Apostle Paul. To whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets, from morning till evening. What we see here in Acts 28 is that Paul met with the Jewish leaders and he extended a gracious hand of fellowship to those that he considered his brothers in the flesh, if not in the faith. And the result was that they sent word to Jewish men all over Rome to come and meet with Paul at an appointed day. They wanted to hear Paul testify about the way, the Christian faith. 
And so that day, Paul's apartment was filled. Filled with men who were eager to hear about Christianity. From this man who had been a Pharisee, a religious person who kept all of the rules and was a good moral man, and yet he was a Pharisee turned follower of Jesus. And Paul did not disappoint. But can you imagine, though, sitting in a house or an apartment filled with people from morning until evening, not even taking a break for lunch, to listen and discuss the claims of Jesus and his disciples? Many of us have a hard time making it for Sunday school and morning worship with coffee and snacks in between. For his part, Luke tells us that Paul explained from the Old Testament scriptures the relationship between Jesus and the kingdom of God. And that Paul also shared his personal testimony of his encounter with the risen Christ. It's interesting, Paul had mentioned this back in verse 20, the hope of Israel as the reason for his chains. What was the hope of Israel? It was the coming kingdom of God. They were hoping for the kingdom to come that was promised. And Paul did not uh, disabuse them of that, of that hope. In fact, Paul confirmed that the hope of Israel, the kingdom of God, was indeed coming. Now, Luke does not record what Paul actually said. But I think from Elsewhere in the book of Acts, as well as the rest of the New Testament, things that Paul wrote, we can reconstruct some of the arguments that Paul made based on the details Luke includes. And so I'm going to do it for you this way. I think Paul summarized or presented the gospel in this way. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the anointed one whom God has promised would come. And establish the kingdom of God on earth by sitting on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. And he would extend his divine power over the whole world. And Jesus proved that he was the rightful king when, even though he was slaughtered innocently for the sins of the world, he rose from the dead. Conquering death and hell and bringing hope of eternal life to all who will trust in Him. Luke doesn't tell us what scriptures Paul referenced, but I imagine that Psalm 68, 18 might have come into play. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men. I also imagine he turned them to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, where he says, My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Behold, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. F.F. Bruce, when he writes about this passage in Acts 28, put it this way, Throughout the day, Paul labored to prove to them that the gospel of Christ was the fine flowering of Israel's religion. That the whole course of Hebrew history and prophecy led up to it and was consummated by it. 
Now here's what I really want to look at today. That's the gospel that Paul presented. That's the gospel that we all need here. But what I really want you to see is the response of this group of Jews because their response was exactly the same as Paul had really encountered every other place where he preached the gospel. Some of them believed and others refused to believe. Look at verse 24. Paul spent all day persuading them, preaching to them, pleading with them. In verse 24, some were persuaded by the things which were spoken. And some disbelieved. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand that. Luke says that some were persuaded and others disbelieved. And when we hear that word persuaded, we might be tempted to think that, 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 that all this is about is about convincing them uh, intellectually of something that's true. And we might think that Paul was able to convince some, maybe those who were kind of, you know, not very intelligent or not very reasoning. And those skeptics, the ones who were really more intelligent, they didn't believe. Maybe we'd be tempted to see it that way. A contrast maybe between those who were coerced and those who remained skeptical. Listen, we live in an age of cynicism where skepticism is a virtue in our society. Being a skeptic gives you, or at least in the minds of some people, gives you a position, an exalted position over those ignorant masses who are duped into following fables. That, that is, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be more distant from what is actually taking place. We might misunderstand this by thinking that there was some hole in Paul's argument and that those people who, who could see through it, saw through it, and walked out the door and said, you know, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but there's just, it just doesn't add up. It's not enough. I just... I don't think it's right, Paul. I can't believe it. The contrast, the reason I say this, the contrast is not between those who were persuaded and those who remained skeptical. The contrast is between those who believed and those who refused to believe. That is the difference. He says some were persuaded In other words, some of them saw the evidence that Paul presented and they realized if that's what Scripture said, then it must be true that Jesus is the Messiah. And they believed. But others saw the evidence Paul presented, knew where that evidence led, and still refused to believe. They all heard the truth. But some of them turned away from believing it. There was no neutral position. And there still is no neutral position. You understand that? There is no neutral position on this subject. Jesus made it very clear in John chapter 3 and verse 18 when he said, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. According to Jesus, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who believe and those who do not believe. There's no third third category of the unconvinced. 
There's not a third category of the we haven't seen enough evidence yet crowd. Richard Lenski says this way, men are determined not to turn from damnation, not to be healed by the Spirit. They love darkness rather than light. They treat salvation as a plague. What is left but judgment and doom? It is not because the claims of the gospel are weak or incomplete or unsophisticated that men do not repent and believe in Jesus. It is that they do not want to turn from their sin and be forgiven. Skeptics aren't really skeptics. They're just men trying to cover up their unbelief. Of course, Paul understood this. And that's why Paul tried to warn these men. He tried to uh, intervene before they became hardened to what he was saying. Look at verse 25. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed. After Paul had said one word. And this is what Paul said to them. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Paul quotes here the prophet Isaiah. He pointed to the fact that it was the Holy Spirit himself who was speaking, rather than just the man Isaiah. This is a very important point. He says there in verse 25, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through the prophet Isaiah. Now, that's a really important statement because it's a statement of the divine inspiration of Scripture. It's a statement that tells us something about the Word of God. It tells us that the Word of God, contrary to what many people today believe, the Word of God is not a book that was written by a bunch of men. The Word of God is not a book that was compiled by men who sat down and said, we're going to put together a book. Paul says that the Holy Spirit spoke these words. The pen was Isaiah's. But the words were the Holy Spirit's. Paul doesn't go any deeper into explaining to us the inspiration of Scripture here. There are other passages of Scripture that deal with that. And I don't want to belabor the subject. But the point is very crucial here. The Word of God is not simply a book written by men. The Bible is not just a book written and compiled by men. If it were, 
then we would expect the Bible to be filled with contradiction and error and confusion. Because as it stands, the Bible is a book that, that spans, was written over a period of about 1,600 years by more than 40 different authors, writing 66 unique books. I think we would be surprised to find agreement in Scripture anywhere if it were simply a compilation of the writings of men. But Paul says that's not what this is. Read the book of Isaiah, Paul says. This is the word of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's important in his argument. Because if the prophet's words can be rightly said to have come from the mouth of God, then we can trust them as a foundation for faith. You see, if the word here that we're reading actually came from God himself, then we have reason to believe it and to trust it above all else. This is why I say we have danger of skepticism. Because what the skeptic is doing is he is holding his own vision, his own hearing, his own intellect, and his own heart up as the determiner of what must be true. That, that what is really trustworthy is what I can see with my eyes. What I can hear with my own ears. That's what's trustworthy. And that's what our world is telling us today over and over and over again. If we can see it, we can trust it. If we can hear it, we can trust it. I'm telling you, that's a lie. What we have is the Holy Spirit speaking through Isaiah the prophet. And not just Isaiah, he's just one of the 40 authors. But we have the Holy Spirit speaking through Isaiah the prophet. That is something that can be trusted. Why? Because it's God speaking. Not man speaking. I don't want to get too far afield here. But this is a trustworthy message because it comes from the Holy Spirit of God. To reject the words of Scripture is to reject the person of God Himself. It wasn't that long ago. It was several, a few months back. I got into a discussion with somebody about uh, about uh, the issue of gay marriage, and it was a discussion that we got into, and I brought up several passages of Scripture and what the Bible says about, uh, about human sexuality. And this man's response was, he got very angry with me because uh, I dared to bring up some part of Scripture that wasn't the words of Jesus. And he really objected to that. He wanted to hear it from Jesus' own lips. And the problem with that is it's a view... His view of Scripture is that the Bible is just a book written by a bunch of men. See, he's not satisfied with reading Isaiah the prophet. Because, well, Isaiah was just a man. He wanted to hear it from Jesus. Well, I tell you what, if you've read Isaiah the prophet, you've heard it from Jesus. Now I know, because Paul says the Holy Spirit spoke. God spoke through Isaiah the prophet. God spoke through the Apostle Paul. God spoke through Moses. God spoke through Amos. He did, so we could spend time in Amos, and it's okay, because God spoke through Amos. Even if we spent, well, we didn't spend a year in Amos, but even if we spent several months in Amos, like we did, it's okay. God spoke. 
Right? We need to understand that. All Scripture comes from God. It's the Word of God. And if we reject the Word of Scripture, this is very important, you have to understand this. If we reject the Word of Scripture, we are rejecting the God of Scripture. And we are rejecting any hope that we might receive salvation from Him. You think about it. Could we really realistically expect God to look on us with favor if we look at His Word that He has given and we scoff at it and we say, he probably, I believe some of it, but no. I don't like that part. I'm not comfortable with that one. You know, my wife asked me a question last night about the, 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 the Israelites going into Canaan and going in and God telling them, listen, go in and wipe them out. Kill them all. Just completely destroy the nations there. And she said, well, you know, did, did they, was this because they deserved it? Or was God just saying, well, you've got to have land somewhere, so we'll get these people out of the way and you can have the land? And these are tough questions. There's a lot of people who look at passages of Scripture like that in the Old Testament and say, well, I like the God of the New Testament. I'm not so sure I like the God of the Old Testament who, you know, tells the Israelites to go in and, 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 and destroy the people in Canaan and take the land. I don't like that. I'm not comfortable with that. <laughs> it's the Word of God, so you take it or you leave it. But if you leave it, why would you expect God to look on you with favor at all? If you look at His Word and say, well, I, you know, God, I, I mean, I like you, God. I'm just not so keen on your Word and what you've said. Huh? No. It doesn't work that way. Listen, this is the Word of God. I'll answer that question another time. It's a lengthy answer, and I had to give her a Brief point last night. You'll have, to, you'll have to ask me later for the answer to that question. Now the truth is, we cannot reject the Word of God. And so what Paul is warning these people about is, is listen, you cannot turn your back on the Word of God. If you reject the fact that the Holy Spirit spoke these words, then you are rejecting God Himself. And you have no right to expect God to look on you with favor. You have no right for God to expect God to forgive your sins. You have no right to expect God to grant you eternal life if you reject and refuse to believe His word. This is why I, I feel like I preached this message before, not even that long ago. Actually, I feel like I preached this message several times through the book of Acts. Because it just keeps coming up. But there's a reason that I keep coming back to this. Because I know that I continue to plead with some of you that you need to pay attention to the Word of God. And stop paying attention to what you feel like. And stop paying attention to so the, 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 the teaching of some church that you heard one time. And start looking at the Word of God. What does the Word of God say about you and who you are? What does the Word of God say about you and what you need? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if men for hundreds of years have, have, have practiced all sorts of religious rituals and you joined in them. None of that matters. What matters is what does God say in His Word. That's what matters. I can't plead with you enough to hear and obey the Word of God because if you do not... You have no reason to expect Him to save you from eternal condemnation. 
Paul takes this quote from Isaiah chapter 6. The Holy Spirit spoke, he said. Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. We don't have time to go back to Isaiah 6, but it's an interesting passage. In Isaiah 6, he saw, the prophet Isaiah saw a vision of God on the throne of heaven. And he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train of his robe filled the temple. And he sees God in this majestic picture. And the Lord calls out and says, Who will go for me? Who will be my messenger? And Isaiah says, Okay, Lord, I'll do it. Here I am, he says, send me. And so God does. And he commissions Isaiah to go to the people of Israel with a message. But the message that God gives Isaiah is probably not what Isaiah expected when he said, I'll go. See, we like to go with a good message, a positive message, a feel-good message, right? Hey, you're all good. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. No worries. We love to preach that message. We love it if that were the truth. And it's part of the truth, but it's not the whole truth. The message that we have from God is far different. The message Isaiah received from God was a very challenging one. See, God told Isaiah that he would preach and the people would not listen. That he would preach and the people would refuse to hear what he said until after they had suffered greatly the punishment, the judgment for their sin. You see, it was during Isaiah's ministry in the, in the land of Judah, that the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by Sennacherib, the armies of Assyria. This took place in the 700s B.C. Isaiah was preaching and prophesying in Judah, there in Jerusalem, in and around the temple. And Sennacherib and the armies of Assyria came down from the north and they just wiped out the northern kingdom, completely destroyed the northern kingdom, took the people captive, Destroyed their military. Wiped out their cities. Just like God had promised. And you imagine what their neighbors to the south thought when the Assyrians came rushing into Israel and destroyed the nation of Israel. Just like God had promised. And there's Isaiah preaching, warning the people of judgment, warning the people to turn back to God. And then Sennacherib continued. See, he didn't stop when he took the northern kingdom. He wanted the southern kingdom too. So he came after Judah. And he came to the city of Jerusalem. And he camped, or he camped near the city of Jerusalem, preparing to attack the city. But it wasn't God's time. The scripture tells us that, it, that an angel of the Lord entered Sennacherib's camp one night and killed 185,000 of his soldiers in one night. And they woke up and the camp was just filled with dead bodies. So Sennacherib got the message, turned tail and went back to Assyria. When he got to Assyria, he was ambushed by his sons, murdered. All of this happened while Isaiah was preaching to the people of Judah. Can you imagine? Here's the prophet, he's preaching about God's judgment, and then you see it happen. You see it happen to the nation to the north of you. Who are your brothers? You know, descendants of Abraham? You see the judgment of God take place? 
And then the army tries to come against you, and God says, no! And destroys Sennacherib's army and sends them back home. Could you imagine? And you sit there and you think, wow, I better listen to this prophet. He must be telling the truth, right? Certainly that would be the response of any of us, right? The people in Judah refused to listen to Isaiah. God had told Isaiah, this is, people aren't going to listen to you. You're going to preach. And their ears are going to be deaf. And their, their eyes are going to be dim. And their hearts are going to be hard. Judah still had a hundred more, more than a hundred years of freedom before their own captivity came. After Isaiah preached to them. More than a hundred years went by. They had ample time to turn. They had plenty of opportunity to repent. And I, I believe from Scripture, had they repented when Isaiah preached, had they responded, God would have withheld the judgment. But a century later, the prophet Jeremiah came on the scene. And he preached God's word to them. And they persecuted him and tried to kill him. See, God was right when he told Isaiah that the heart of the people would grow dull even as they heard him preach. And I think that Alec Motier is right when he says this is the preacher's dilemma. If hearers are resistant to the truth, the only recourse is to tell them the truth again more clearly than before. But... This is the dilemma that a preacher faces. And I'll be honest, I've wrestled with this this week. Motier says, but to do this is to expose them to the risk of rejecting the truth yet again and therefore of increased hardness of heart. You see, for me to stand up here this morning and preach to you the gospel, it's a risk that I'm running. The risk is that you would hear what I've preached and you would reject it. You'd refuse to believe. And in refusing to believe and hardening your heart, you would prepare yourself for the judgment of God. So I realized that when I preached the gospel to you this morning, I put you in a dangerous position. If you refuse to believe and repent of your sins, harden your heart against God, you may pass the window of opportunity in which repentance and faith are even possible. And you say, how can you possibly know that? Well, first of all, let me tell you, I don't know where that line is. I don't know when you cross that line. But I know it's possible. The reason I know it is that God said it right here in these verses. God said it to Isaiah. And through Isaiah and Paul to these Jews, the end of verse 27, he said, their, their ears are hard, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. He says, they have refused to hear. They refuse to hear, and so because they have refused to hear, and their hearts have become hard, they do not understand, and they can't turn to me. Because if they turn to me, they will be healed. 
But by hardening their hearts, they cannot be healed. Paul tells us, or rather the Lord tells us in His Word, that we should not despise the voice of the Lord that calls us to repentance. Just, just keep your finger here. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 3. I want to read these verses. I think this is important. Hebrews chapter 3. Beginning in verse 7, and here the author of Hebrews again goes back to the Old Testament for an example. And he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, by the way, I love this because this Holy Spirit now is speaking in the book of Psalms. Same Holy Spirit, different human author. This is Scripture, this is the Word of God. He says, today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Beware. Brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. According to that passage of Scripture, God is the one who is speaking, right? God is the one who spoke against those who hardened their hearts. And he said, they shall not enter my rest. God said, they harden their hearts against me? Fine. Then they will not have the opportunity to receive my grace. See, if you harden your heart, you cannot receive the grace of God. This is what Paul was warning about in Acts chapter 28. Right there in the last part of verse 26. The danger of a hard heart. That's what, my, that's what I entitled my message this morning. I don't usually tell you what the title is. The danger of a hard heart. And what is the danger of a hard heart? It's that forgiveness is impossible without repentance. You cannot be forgiven if you will not turn from your sin. And repentance is impossible without understanding. And understanding is impossible with eyes that are closed, ears that are deaf, and hearts that are insulated against the truth. To put it another way, it's impossible for anyone to be saved who hardens his heart against the truth. He cannot do it. Paul was not trying to condemn those Jews who were in his apartment listening to what he said. And I'm not condemning you this morning. But you must understand that it's a dangerous thing for you to hear the words of eternal life and refuse to believe what you have heard. you harden your heart against the gospel, and you refuse to humble yourself before the Lord, you will not, you cannot be forgiven of your sin. But was Paul really expecting a response? I mean, was it realistic? 
Was it realistic for Paul to expect these Jews who had built their entire lives around keeping the law and developing their own self-righteousness in their own religion? Was it really realistic for Paul to expect them to turn away from that all in one day of hearing him talk? The first time they heard it? I mean, really? Shouldn't they have taken time to consider this? Shouldn't he have expected them to, to maybe take some time to weigh the options and really, really think this all out? I mean, is it really realistic for us to expect that you would hear the gospel and you would believe the gospel immediately upon hearing it? That certainly seems like a little bit of a stretch, don't you think? But think back to Paul's testimony of his own conversion to Christianity. And he was traveling to Damascus to arrest Christians, deliver them to the chief priests for persecution. Paul was not a, a neutral, disinterested party. Paul was actively hostile to the Christian faith and to any Christian believers that he found. Luke says back in, in the early part of Acts that Paul was breathing out murder against them. This is the, the attitude that Paul had. And he's walking there, approaching the city of Damascus, and a great light shone down from heaven on him, and it knocked him to the ground. And out of that light, the Lord Jesus spoke to Paul. Did Paul, upon hearing Jesus speak to him, did Paul stop and say, well, this is an awful lot to take in. I'm going to need some time to think about it. I'm just not sure I'm ready right now to, you know, it seems like an awful lot you're asking for me to kind of just change direction. You know, I am in the middle of going to persecuting Christians. I don't know what people think, you know, if I do this. Boy, it sure seems like an awful lot to ask. I'm just not, I'm just not sure that I'm ready, you know. Or, or you know, I'm, I'm a, listen, I'm a good person. I'm a religious person. Sure, I believe in God. Oh, of course I do. I'm okay. I mean, do we hear any of that from the mouth of Paul when Jesus speaks to him from heaven? The first time that Paul here, the first time that Paul here encounters the gospel in a very real and meaningful way in his life. The first time. The instant when Christ speaks to him. Is there any delay at all? Did he put off a response to the Lord? What did Paul do? Lord, what will you have me do? Master! Paul was saying, immediately. I mean, instantly, Paul realized there's no point in arguing this. He's the Lord. All I can do is say, Lord, you're the master. I'm the servant. Tell me what to do. That was Paul's response. So is it really fair? Is it really fair for, for me to preach this message this morning? For me to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then to expect that you will believe and respond immediately by saying, Lord, what will you have me do? 
Lord, you're the master, I'm the servant. How do you want me to serve? Is that a realistic response? Am I asking too much here? I don't think so. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. There's, there's no delay. There's no process necessary. Only believe. That's what you must do. That's what Paul was calling on his Jewish brothers to do. But Luke records the ending of this meeting. He said in verse 25 that they disagreed among themselves and left. He repeats it in verse 29. When he spoke these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute amongst themselves. Some believed. That's good news. But others refused to believe. And they left having a great discussion and debate. They seemed to be unmoved by all that Paul had told them. By the warning that he had given them. The danger of hardening their heart. You know, in 1829, George Wilson and James Porter were arrested and charged with several counts, including armed robbery of the U.S. mail and putting a mail carrier's life in jeopardy. They were both convicted the following year and given the death penalty. Porter was hanged. But before Wilson could be executed, some influential friends convinced President Andrew Jackson to offer Wilson a pardon. And uh, if you go to the Cornell Law Library, you can read the pardon in great detail. It's a flowering letter with all sorts of grandiose speech. It's kind of interesting. The only problem, though, was when Jackson sent that letter, had it delivered to Wilson, the prisoner refused to accept it. This led to all sorts of confusion in the courts. Ultimately, the case ended up in the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1830, the Chief Justice John Marshall wrote the decision of the court. It's a fairly lengthy statement. I won't bore you with it this morning. But I do want to just, just read to you one little excerpt of it that I think gives the essence of the issue. This Supreme Court decision, John Marshall wrote this, A pardon is an act of grace, proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of laws, which exempts the individual on whom it is bestowed from the punishment the law inflicts for a crime he has committed. It is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. Get this. A pardon is a deed, and in order to be effective and valid, it must be delivered, he says. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And if it is rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it on him. The same thing is true with respect to the forgiveness of sins. The Gospel says that you can be cleansed from every stain of sin and have eternal life. At no cost to you. Because the price has already been paid in full by Jesus when He shed His blood on the cross. All you must do is repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and receive pardon. But you can reject it. You can reject it and choose condemnation and death. 
That's the choice that's before you right now. Will you receive the pardon that the Lord is offering you today?